Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 325, and today's guest is Alex Shishu, co-founder and co-CEO of 10Beauty. About 10 years ago, Peter Thiel is credited for saying, we wanted flying cars, instead we got 140 characters. True, Twitter or X certainly was not in the same frame of mind as to what we saw in the Jetsons, but are we finally starting to get there? The Roomba was a step in the right direction in terms of a consumer robot success story. And I think we might actually be upon the future. The future might be closer than you think in terms of the possibilities of robotics and automation. Because this company that I'm sharing with you, 10 Beauty, has created the world's first and only autonomous manicure machine. Now, I might not be the target market for this robotics company, but my wife and two daughters are definitely in the strike zone. And when I told them about it, their immediate response was, when and where can I get one? 10 Beauty is not going to be available for consumers to purchase, at least not initially, as they are taking a B2B approach in terms of their go-to-market strategy. But for me, it's less about the tasks that this robot is performing and more about a team that is thinking bigger and ultimately delivering on something that is incredibly difficult. 10 Beauty has raised $38 million in funding from Shine Capital, Lara Hippo, Imaginary Ventures, and Red Sea Ventures. Oh, and they already have some serious traction, as they've already sold out of their entire first run of machines, which means they have over $13 million in annual manicure subscription revenue ahead. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a deep dive into the challenges and the complexity of building a robotic startup, Alex's background story, and how he met his co-founder Justin Efron the first day of school at the University of Pennsylvania, the story of their first company, Alice, a task management platform for the hospitality industry that was acquired by Expedia, plus how they connected with their technical co-founder, Dmitry Kaltunov, the definition of a good partnership between co-founders and how they divvy up roles and responsibilities, all the details on 10 Beauty, from meeting Chris Casey, one of the original Roomba engineers, to building out the initial prototype, to raising funding, to the company's business model and projected launch, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that we publish three different emails at VentureFizz? We have a weekly digest email that comes out every Monday. It is a curated email of the must-know information across VentureFizz and the tech industry at large. We also have a personalized daily job alerts email and a daily insights email, which features the content that is published on VentureFizz every single day. Go to VentureFizz.com register to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Alex. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Whew, man, I am excited to talk to you because I don't know, like, I love technology. I love all things, you know, cloud computing, cybersecurity. There's all these different AI, right? There's all these different flavors of technology that are super important to, you know, doing what we do, whether it's business or consumer. Um, <laughs> but when I learned about what you were building, <laughs> I was just like, wait a second, this is a whole different ballgame of complexity. <laughs> so that's why I was so excited because it's one of those things when you hear the idea, you're like, really? So um, this could be transformative and it makes endless possibilities of excitement of what the future can look like. So we're going to talk about your company, 10 Beauty, and we're going to talk about the company you started before that. And we're, it's kind of hard to like answer this question without explaining what 10 Beauty does, but it's basically yes. just to give our audience a quick, it's, it's going to be a robotics version of a manicure. And we're going to talk about how that works and how it all happens, but it's fascinating. So this 
opens my eyes to the possibilities of robotics and automation. So I want to get your glimpse because you came from like a, you know, more of a traditional software SaaS background to now doing something really groundbreaking. So what have you learned about the robotics industry and like what the future could look like here? Yeah, we we definitely came from software 360 to manicure robots, um, not a natural path. You know, when we started, we didn't know anything about hardware. And so we were naively optimistic about the challenges we'd face. And I think that's great. I think that's why so, so many first-time founders often break through the barriers because, you know, if you knew how difficult your business would be to start, you might not start it. And <laughs> you'd give up on yourself before you started. Um, what I've learned about robotics, I, I've learned an appreciation for how hard it is. Um, you know, the old saying, hardware is hard. Um, I didn't, I didn't respect that enough at the beginning. Um, you know, I think the thing about robotics is you have so many disciplines to get a business off the ground. It's not like your traditional software startup where a few engineers and a few good minds can get in a room and do it and do it pretty quickly and you get feedback immediately. And then to be honest, you can change the products when you put it out there into once you start, people start using it. Whereas with robotics, you can't really change the product. You you have to be so much more intentional from the get-go. The product you put out and what it does is what it does. There's no turning a robot manicure machine into a dishwasher um, overnight. And, and it takes an army. You have all the traditional roles that you have in software. So you have your, your software engineers. You have We have a mobile app with mobile engineers. We have marketing and sales and people and all the roles you need to build a company. And then you have all the hardware roles. You have your mechanical engineers, your embedded software engineers, your electrical engineers, your technicians, your, we have our computer vision team. I mean, it's not for the faint hearted. You, you, you know, you need a lot of funding to, to start us mm -hmm. a, a hardware business and then also to launch it. Cause then, then comes in all the manufacturing roles We have a machine, we have a consumable, which we can talk about, which is the pod We have the mobile app that runs it. We have all the cloud infrastructure that you might have as a software company. Um, and so appreciation and, you know, in, in short, we'll talk about this, but what we thought would take two years is going to take, or two to three years is going to take four to five years. Um, you know, I, I didn't get a manicure from a robot for three and a half years. Wow. And with Alice, our last company, there was a lot of happening in eight months. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a different, different ball game. So yeah, I'm excited to talk more about what you guys are up to. So, well, let's rewind the clock. So uh, where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? Uh, I grew up in London. As a baby, I lived in, in the South of France for three years, but I don't remember those years. Um, so I grew up in London. I have an amazing family, five, five kids. I have a twin brother, three younger sisters. Uh, so it was fun, loud house. I was really competitive. I'm still really competitive. But I was really competitive as a kid. Um, always looking for a sport, always looking for a challenge. And, you know, I had, a, I had a great childhood, a ton of great memories. I went to, I got a very good education. And like my parents really gave me a fantastic foundation. I'm very privileged. They gave me a great foundation um, in the world. And, and, I like to think I took good advantage of it. You can always look back and say, I wish I'd done more, but I, I think where I am now is a product of where they what they gave me in the beginning. 
And so I like to think I took full advantage of it. And I obviously left England when I was 18 to come to America. I went to UPenn. You know, I'd always been attracted to the idea of America. And that set me up for another successful future. I mean, America is an amazing infrastructure for entrepreneurs. And I didn't realize that when I was coming, of course. Um, I, I thought I was going to a place where I could you know, meet lots more more people, um, to be honest, party harder and um, get a great education at the same time. And you know, now as I look at it, what we can do in America is far ahead of what I think entrepreneurs have access to in Europe. And so very grateful for that. And then got a sprinkle in maybe you could say luck or serendipity. You met your co-founder the first day of school? Yes. Yeah. I met Justin the f about the first day of school. Uh, I also met my wife the first week of school as well. Did um, you really? Yeah. yeah. She was my first kiss at Penn, believe it or not. Um, we actually <laughs> didn't date for three years afterwards because she always had boyfriends and I was chasing her. Um, but Justin was immediately there and we we struck up a very good relationship and um you know 15 years later we're still we're still going strong and i actually think that's the most valuable uh asset piece of my career is the partnership with justin and actually i think the strongest piece of 10 beauty is is our partnership and you you did go off and you know you landed at goldman um, mm -hmm. but were you in college where the two of you just bouncing ideas? Like, was it always kind of like a, a vibe that, Hey, we might start something someday. I think so without realizing it, uh, not just the two of us, uh, a lot of us, um, I was at the business school for the undergrad. And so you get a lot of exposure to entrepreneurship through that. Um, but we were always bouncing ideas. Most of them stupid or most of them half baked and it wasn't until we started Alice that we we got serious about it. All right. So you did, you know, the, the maybe one year at Goldman. So at, at what point were you and Justin like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna you know start something? How did the idea percolate for Alice? So Alice, for those who don't know what we did, and then I'll get into how we started. Maybe is we built Alice um, a hotel operations software, and so what Alice ended up being was a task management system for hotel staff that all of them could work on together, but recognize the differences in departments. So housekeeping, maintenance, front desk, concierge could all log into Alice and track all of the work they're doing independently and with each other, and then ultimately communicate that back to the guest. And so if a guest calls down and asks for towels, the operator picking up can put it into Alice, we would dispatch it to the person who has to deliver towels, but not just guest requests, staff to staff communication. So uh, there are this many guests in a room, this many guests checking out, this many housekeepers working today. How do we divide up all the rooms to be cleaned? And then throughout the day, change that as do not disturb signs on the door, as rooms need maintenance, how do they send it to maintenance? But then also assets to the staff. So you have thousands of air conditioners. Those need to be checked every three months. And so creating an automated schedule for, for those preventative maintenance issues. And so we basically built, you know, a super hotel task management system with a very easy to use experience for, for really people who don't love technology. And we grew it to be the largest in the space and ultimately um, sold the business to Expedia 
Um, but a lot along the way, really, it was boot camp for startups. We were 23 when we started. Eight years later, we'd sold it to Expedia, but we got to acquire a competitor. We we helped the business recover through COVID. We were able to you know grow a team of 150, and we were in 17 countries, and we were three and a half thousand hotels in in 64 countries, I think. How did we start? Yeah, I was gonna say, which is all a great story, but that wasn't the original concept. <laughs> How did we start? Uh, we had just graduated from Penn. We were traveling, pre-starting our traditional finance roles. And honestly, when I came, I I had stayed on in Hong Kong and China for an extra two weeks with my twin brother. And when I came back, Justin and a few other friends, Ryan and, and Julie, who's now Justin's wife, had started working on a business they called Easy Traveler. And so they, Justin, Justin was saw frustrations with how you interact as a guest with hotels. And this was around when the service on demand revolution was happening. So when Uber was becoming popular and food delivery was becoming popular. And so the original idea was service on demand for hotels. Could we build one centralized consumer application that would allow you to engage with every hotel you're staying in, ask for room service, see the menu, ask for towels, check in, check out, you know, the door dash of hotels for example, um, I had come back. I was living with Justin. My father was in, had was a hotelier, so I'd grown up in hotels, um, and you know, we was just eager to dive in. And we were working on this original concept on nights and weekends and toilet breaks, and you know, eventually it evolved into what it was today. Yeah, because it was, but at first it was more like a guest app, right? It wasn't the platform for the inner workings of the hotel and full disclosure i was a porter at the holiday inn in manchester new hampshire in high school in the first couple of years of college so i was doing room service luggage airport runs banquet setup so i was i was living this life i the hotel industry is a great industry it touches so many people in so many ways um and so many positive ways it's an amazing space it was you know, we, we originally set out to improve the guest experience of a hotel. If you think like extrapolate what we're doing as a mission, so you can improve the hotel guest experience. We thought the, the, the best way to do that was to build a consumer app for guests. As we started diving more and more into hotels, we started realizing that we were maybe a bit ahead of our time because the infrastructure in hotels wasn't there to support it. And so for example, it would be like having Uber, but none of the drivers have smartphones. How do you get the request to them? And so when we were building this, and we, we both saw this, but also learned it the hard way when we launched, in order to make the app for guests, we needed to have a place to receive the requests. And so we ended up having to build a, a portal for hotel staff and, and almost put iPads at each station, one in the room service, one at housekeeping, front desk already had computers and so that a guest could make a request and it would go to the right department for them to act on in the first versions of the software. It wasn't very complicated. And by doing that, we had stumbled upon the first piece of interdepartmental communication in the hotel because traditionally they'd either have a radio and that's how they communicated between departments or they would have their own specific solutions. So a concierge would have a concierge only piece of software and a housekeeper would have a housekeeping only piece of software and none of them spoke to each other. This was before open APIs and all of that. And so we had stumbled into the first piece of interdepartmental communication. And when we when we launched our first few hotels, 
we were getting engagement, we were getting guest requests, but as we dove into that and understood where they're coming from so we could learn from them, what we realized is we were often actually seeing hotel staff members pretending to be guests and putting in the request for them because we had inadvertently given them the easiest way to send a request to the other department. So if a guest walks past the front desk and says, hey, I'm heading out, you know, my toilet's broken, can you send someone up? Instead of the front desk having to track down maintenance over and over again, all they had to do was go into Alice and send it to the maintenance department. And then they would they could wipe their hands with it. They're done. They could just see when it was finished. And and as we realized that, and this is what we talked about earlier with robotics first software, that night we had our engineering team who were in Ukraine at the time uh, code in a button on the back end that just made it easier for the staff to do that. And I think we called it like add internal staff made guest request. It was like some long winded internal request feature and that button became our entire business that button became everything it became obviously we built out entire departments as a result of that button and that's where most of the engagement happened with staff to staff because there's much more staff to staff engagement than there is guest to staff engagement in a hotel and one of the hardest things around building a company is uh you know we talked about the relationship between you and justin as co-founders but Finding a technical co-founder to actually build the product is a whole different complexity of success. So how did how did that come about? Yeah, so you've had Dimitri on here before um, back in the day. Um, we we were looking, everyone struggles with this, right? You have non-technical co-founders trying to start a tech company and looking for that technical savior. We, we were no different. Um, but what we did is we didn't let it stop us. So we went out and did as much as we could without it. And we'd signed hotels on the idea. We'd drawn up, mocked up images of what it could look like. We'd started speaking to guests and customers. And we, and so in short, we de-risked it as much as we could so that when anyone technical wanted to join, they'd have something to join. Um, but we ended up getting introduced to Dimitri from Nihal, who was a, uh, he runs ENIAC Ventures and was a mentor of Justin's. And that he had known Dimitri. It was all a pen connection, to be honest. Dimitri had gone to Penn 10 years before us and Nahal had known him from Penn. And at the time, Dimitri was solving this problem. He was running a consulting firm that would help, I think it was get non-technical founders from ideation to creation. So help them scope out, like, what are you trying to build? How would you architect this? So that you could give that to a development shop or to a technical resource to build. And we became one of his companies, but I, a true story, I remember Justin met him for lunch and I was still at Goldman at the time. Justin had already left Citibank to do Alice. And he just said, I, he came back from lunch and said, I just met our CTO. He just doesn't know it yet. <laughs> and we dated Dimitri for about eight months. And Dimitri's the kind of guy who, when he's in, he's all in. It's, he, he really sinks into a pro project. And we were the lucky ones that had the opportunity to be the project he'd sunk into and you know, made him a third co-founder. And we, we saw it from the beginning and he just had to date us to get there. So, so what was raising capital like as a, you know, first time founders? I mean, I think what, you know, I don't know what the exact time frame, but at some point um, Expedia made an investment mm -hmm. um, and the person that was involved with making that deal happen is now the CEO of Uber, which is a person that people recognize now based on, uh, you know, the great work he's done. Dara, so Expedia works where the CEO would sign off in every acquisition, tiny and big. 
And so it was Dara's signature we needed eventually. Um, and we had met someone from, we had been introduced to Dara from someone who knew him from their childhood or their college. And, you know, it's Expedia and then it's Little Hours. So Dara pushes us down to the bottom and great, speak to this person. And then Justin's a dog with a bone, works his way all the way up over a year and a half back to Dara, right? And Tom Rose was the was leading the investment for us at the time and invited us to Seattle to meet with the with what we thought was him, to be honest. And in walks Dara and Mark Okerstrom, who, who was the CFO and became the CEO of Expedia. Um, and a 30-minute meeting turned into two hours so we were blown away. It was just like two hours with the C-suite of Expedia and we were tiny. Uh, and then at the end, just they were like, so what's the deal? And Justin quite you know, said, you know, we didn't want to waste your time because this is an amazing meeting, but we're, we're looking to get term sheets in two weeks. It's way too quick for you. So, you know, we appreciate you probably have to bow out, but, you know, we wanted to meet. And they're like, no, we can two weeks, we can do two weeks. And in two weeks time, they delivered a term sheet and, and funded our series a that's awesome that's such a great story all right so one of the other things that you're building this company that's focused on the hotel industry pandemic happens so what was that time frame like oh, um so it's it's somewhat complicated we had you know this was towards the end of our alice journey um we had we had already done a Series B with, with Expedia, where we we acquired Go Concierge, phenomenal concierge software that had been around twenty years. And that's another funny story, Dara story actually, which is, uh, I was getting married right around when we were trying to close the Series B, and so we were basically saying to lawyers like, just get this closed, get this closed. Alex is getting married tomorrow, and so they closed it Friday afternoon, and then that Sunday Dara left to, to join Uber, and so the deal would have been dead. I mean, wow. like his goodbye present to us was signing our piece of paper. And so eternally yeah. grateful. He didn't, you know, eternally grateful that he signed it because on Sunday he was gone and Expedia shut down naturally as they, without a CEO. And I, I don't think we would have had a company today mm -hmm. if we didn't, wow. if I didn't get married on that Saturday and forced the lawyers to close on that Friday. Um, COVID to your question was, uh, COVID was very difficult. Um, you know, at the beginning of COVID, there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, 100% almost of our hotels stopped paying their bills. It doesn't matter that you have a contract. There's no one to pay the bill. That, that person's been furloughed. Um, we were 140 people. We had some really difficult decisions to make. Um, unfortunately for us, a lot of our staff were international. And so the, the furlough, like a lot of the payment, the government payment plans weren't you, know, you had to use them on US-based employees. And so it didn't protect us as much as, as other companies. And so we had to we had to go through a riff like most companies. We I think we had to um let, let go of follow about 45 people in a day. And it was it was very difficult. Um you know, I think people understood and appreciated and it was not personal. Um it was a very enriching experience. We for the first time ever, we were on the phone with our biggest competitors for weeks how are you getting through that? Like the whole in every industry stopped competing with each other. And I think started getting like, how do we all get our industry through this thing? And so we were on the phone with our competitors, genuinely, openly 
how are you communicating? Are you are you getting customers to pay? What's happening? What are you doing about your teams? It was very, it was like a dog year. You learn more in one year than seven. Um, you know, fortunately for us, we came out of it very strong. Hotels with less staff actually need software more. Right? They if with less staff, a ten thousand dollar piece of software suddenly much more impactful. Communication becomes even more important. And and the hotel economy, hotels thriving now. I mean, you've seen the prices of hotels, and so Alice came up with about 90% of its customer base still intact. We happen to be in the right segment, luxury boutique, the places you, you love to go now, you know, we're, we're our clients. And so we, we, we were very fortunate with the segment we're in. We came out really strong and you know, ultimately sold the business to Expedia and then helped them sell it to a private equity fund. All right. So one of the things that I've been like, I, this has always been a thing, but I, um, I don't know. It just seems like it's been more visible, at least in the conversations I've been having. And, um, you know, we talked about you and, and Justin working well together and you're mm -hmm. building another company together. Like, how do you, how did you decide in the early days of what to focus on, like divide and conquer? Because one of the things I've been hearing over and over again is one of the biggest reasons why startups fail is co-founder conflict. Co-founder so, conflict. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why it's been coming up in like every podcast. They're like, well, one of the reasons that companies fail, like a lot of investors have been saying that, um, which I don't think a lot of people think about. So how did you decide how to divvy up who's doing what and make that a, a good partnership? I think there's a difference between divvying up and then good partnership. So divvying up, we have our strong suits. I, I, and Dimitri too, like Dimitri was a, a perfect, amazing third component here. So Justin and I are very similar socially, but very different in the workplace. He is very good at task management, at, you know, if you give him something, it gets done. He's very good at being um, financially aware. And so Justin is a very good salesperson and a very good fundraiser, right? Like those two jobs are, off, are very similar. Sales and fundraising is effectively the same thing. You build a prospect list and then you work it, work it, work it relentlessly. Same message, same story. It's not as creative as you think, right? It's process driven. It's very much projection and rep repetition and persistence, hum humble persistence. And he's v the best I've seen at it. Amazing. And, you know, if you met us in a bar, you'd say Alex is the better salesperson and you'd be absolutely wrong. You've never done sales. Sales is not about who can have a good drink with you. And that's marketing. Um, sales is, a, is repetition and volume. Uh, whereas I much more enjoy the creative sides of the business. How do we build an amazing culture? How do we convince people to come join our tiny company in a sea of companies they have to join? Like I very much, I take the approach that every company is the same. It's just a people company. We're building different products. We're selling into different industries, but you solve the people thing. Those people build the product. People build, sell, sell the, the, the solution. People build marketing. And so you're really, you all have the same problem solved people. And so I spent most of my time internally. You know, I said, said another way, Justin ran the business. I ran the company and then Dimitri runs the technology because neither of us could build software. And he, he was a phenomenally gifted software manager effectively and builder. Um, so that's how we divvied up. And that's how we divvy up today. We, we have a hardware business now, Dimitri's a software guy. So we found, which I'd love to talk about later. We found, got introduced to Chris and same model. Justin business, so fundraising and sales. And remember, startups are fundraising all the time. Uh, Alex runs the company. 
in this one, Chris runs the tech. On the relationship side, this is why I think you have to have real trust in each other. And so I trust Justin as, you know, like a brother. And um, and examples of why that is important is if you know he's out meeting with venture, the venture community, he's meeting with some of the biggest people in tech in the technology world, really cool people. And most founders would be jealous and want to be in the meeting. I have no interest. Bring me to the last one, right? Let me, he's out fundraising, I'm building the company. And you have to divide and conquer is what I'm trying to say and trust each other to divide and to conquer. And then share notes and work with each other. If you're both, if you're both or three of you doubling or tripling up on the same work, you're just wasting time. And so I think that's the, that level of trust is, is often hard to achieve. And then like anything, you spend more time with your co-founder than you do your family. And, you know, how do I say it in a polite way? People are weird and people, things come up and people are emotional and people have their own ambitions and agendas. And if they're not, they're not fully aligned, it's very, very difficult. And so I want, can I give one piece of advice Definitely. to, to new co-founders? Um, Dimitri made us do this, so I, the credits to Dimitri, but he was coming in and he had to deal with me and Justin being married. Right. And so he made us do an exercise that I thought was phenomenal. And I've, I've encouraged many founders to do it, which is write out a list of questions on the type of company you're trying to build and what your ambitions are. What's the culture you want? What do you want to do? What not do you want to do? When you sell, what's a good outcome? What's a bad outcome? Do you want to sell in two years, five years, 10 years? What business do you want to be in? Who's the CEO? Who's in charge? And, and answer those questions independently and then bring your answers and share them with each other and discuss it. And that discussion will set a groundwork for, for real understanding. You don't need to have the same answers. You just need to understand each other's because those, those deeply held beliefs are what are going to form people's actions. And if you understand what people believe in and what they value, you can an understand and work with them on their actions. That is phenomenal advice. I love that. Uh, definitely something that founders should definitely consider doing. Okay, let's fast forward to what you're doing today with 10 Beauty. So yeah. going back to what I said in the intro, when I first heard about this, I was like, what? This is amazing. So uh, how did you and Justin decide to, and you know, I give you a world of props because it's like you built a company, scaled it, had an exit, and now you're doing something that is truly just game changing can create a whole industry. Mm -hmm. So, so what led you down this path? And obviously we want to talk about what you're doing. <laughs> uh, so, so when we, when we were coming to the end of the Alice journey, you know, we had agreed to sell our company and that takes time, but we knew when, when that would be COVID had a slight hiccup in that, but it was around 2019 that we started thinking about what to do next. And that was when, that was when Peloton was becoming Peloton, right? And, and this whole wave of hardware into the fitness services space. And we were just really fascinated by that introduction of hardware into everyday life and started looking into it and you kind of, you know, rewind to Keurig and Espresso making coffees for you, not intelligent hardware, but game you know, hardware in your home performing a service 
um, down all the way down to iRobot, which is where Chris came from, putting a complicated uh, automatic vacuum machine in your house back in 2001, pre-iPhone. And so we were really inspired by this introduction of hardware into everyday life. And then the second thing we realized, which a lot of people know to be true, is there's no such thing as an overnight success. It may look like one, but it's on the back of 10 years of someone building a company. And, you know, that's been true of Uber and all every story you're aware of. And so, you know, we tie those things together. We, we say, well, if we're going to build a company, we want it to be meaningful. We felt like we'd earned the right to build a really meaningful company. Having gone through the trials and tribulations of Alice, we felt like we were no longer 23 and didn't know how you build a company. We had all these tools we were eager to use again. And so then it was, well, where, where is the world going and what can we build for where the world is going? And this was where we were fascinated by what was happening in, in fitness. And we started looking at our own spend and our own time and people around us and got really intrigued by beauty services. You know, the, at the time, women had overtaken men in the workforce in the US and from a sheer numbers perspective. Um, beauty services is a massive market, bigger than the product. It costs more to get a manicure than it does to buy a bottle of nail polish. And yet all the innovations in the product and what you put in and on your skin on how you interact with that industry. And so we felt it was a fantastic opportunity to make real change in consumers' lives. And that beauty rituals, whilst fundamentally important to people, had become a chore. You know, I think a lot of, at least over the last four years, a lot of the people we speak to find going to get a manicure a chore now. It's There's obviously a subset of the population who enjoy it and love it and it's part of the their routine but for most people it's it's really about having your nails done it's about the result not the not the process uh for whatever reason whether it makes you feel more productive whether it's part of your fashion look where you know you're typing all day long you you see your fingers all day long to those who do it because it stops them biting the nails right whatever your reason whatever the job it's doing for you a lot of it is mostly not decompression um, and you can see that when you look through a nail salon, you'll see people on their phone. You see them not engaging with the manicurist. You're, you know, if you could give an hour back to those consumers, they could go do something different. And for those who get manicures, which is a huge, huge subset of people, getting a manicure every two weeks is an hour at least. And that's, a, that's an entire day of your year, of your calendar year on manicure process. Um, so if you give someone a day back, imagine what they could do with it today. And, and so that's where we ended up settling on, could we do something here? Where would the best place be to start? Blow dry machines would be amazing, but maybe people don't want to put their head in a robot yet. Hair is very different across demographics, whereas manicures are very similar process. Robots are only good at doing one thing and not everything else. And so ended up settling on, okay, maybe we could build the world's first machine that could do a full manicure. When I say full manicure, a machine you can put your hand into, it knows where your nails are, it can remove your nail polish, it can shape your nails down to whatever shape and length you want, it can manage your cuticles, and then ultimately it can paint a base coat, a nail polish, and a top coat, and dry it. Full, full, full manicure. Okay, so so how did you get started, right? We talked about Alice, which, you know, very successful, complex, great company. This as you started out talking at the beginning of the conversation, hardware is hard. So how'd you meet Chris Casey, who was one of the original engineers working on the Roomba, right? Yeah. 
same way we met Dimitri. We, not through a mentor, but we were we were looking at how could who could we bring on. You know, originally our idea is can it be done? Not how do you do it. With software, pretty much if you can draw it, you can build it. With hardware, you know, if I draw you a teleportation device, you're not teleporting tomorrow. So um, we were kind of curious of could it be done? Does, does the technology in the world exist today such that this is possible? And so we we reached out to a lot of the venture funds that do early stage robotics. Got introduced to eventually Bolt Ventures, who who. I forget who it was exactly, but said Chris Casey's one of the best we've seen at it. And introduced us to Chris. And same thing, brought him on as a consultant, knowing we'd slowly rope him in to be our CTO and co-founder. Um, and just really liked Chris, really hit it off culturally. He'd Did you had pitch him like, hey, Chris, we've got this idea that we're going to disrupt the beauty industry, specifically manicures, and we're going to create this product that does it all in one like one. Yeah. Time. Hey, Chris, we... You don't know us, but we want to build a machine that can give a human a full manicure. What do you think? Um, and at some point, it was if it was him or Marcus, the first engineer, brought on it was the the I, the concept was well, it's probably not impossible. And Which probably gets his gears turned. Like, oh, this is fun. Yeah. This is a challenge that I'm ready to see yeah. through. And then you start with feasibility. So, what technologies exist in the world to make this possible today? And then it moves into concept design and, and, you know, the, originally we were like, okay, if you, what's a manicure, it's removal of nail polish, it's shaping of nails, it's computer vision. It's a gantry that moves up, down, left, and right around you. So, you, okay, you've got 3d printers. So clearly the gantry can be built. You've got, um, you know, painting Well, lots of things in the world get painted by robots, cars, not nails, but you know, like conceptually. Okay. And so hiring experts to go in and do the research on, okay, does the technology exist such as this, this is possible? The answer became yes. Okay, prove it. So we hired a company, Cooper Perkins. We went out and raised our first round with this. We initially self-funded the research and then raised our first round from, from Ben Lear, Lear Hippo, um, who's amazing and the best investor in the world and turned us down for Alice. And so now we have the opportunity to work together and um, it's been incredible. And with that, we said, prove it. And so we built separate machines. So we, we did deep dives on, okay, how would we remove nail polish? And we built a nail polish removal tool. How would we paint nails? And we got a very expensive robot arm to come in and paint a fake nail. And the results were really good. And so, okay, now that we've shown how we might attack each of the stages of a manicure, now let's go and raise around to actually put it together and build our first robot manicure machine. And it started really big. You could sit inside the machine and it only did a few things to today where, you know, it's fully functioning final size manicure machine that you can put your hand into and it gives you a fully autonomous manicure. And it's probably one of the first devices in the world that interacts with a human to the level of precision we do completely unassisted, completely autonomously and at a consumer price point. You know, we're not using... $10,000 cameras that already have depth perception. And we're using $30 cameras that we need to do the math on where your fingers are. And so I think it's one of the first in the, of its kind in any industry. And we can talk about what that means and where we are. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so I have two daughters uh, and my wife are all the, the demographic here, they, they they like having their nails done. Yeah. So 
I sent them your website and they were just like, need that tomorrow. Like now I need that now. Like, like is it available? Like, it's, so, so when you tell people, they must be like, this is amazing. Are you serious? Like, okay now, but it's not going to be a consumer product at least yet. So what's like the business behind what you're building? So originally it was meant to be a consumer product out the gates um, for the same reason, which is the reaction you got. Oh my goodness. I, I could do this when my kids are asleep. And I can, like, do this can you imagine like social media with this product? It's just like where it has to end up is the ability to do it in the home for those who really, really, really love manicures. It's just a game changer. It's like, like having a Peloton. You can do it before you shower, right? Um, you don't need to leave your house. Um, as we developed it, we learned what would be the true cost and the size of the machine. And it just put us slightly out of what we thought made sense for consumer market, regardless of the fact that the consumer economy is a little bit more unstable than when we started this. Um, it just put us slightly out of the strike zone. You know, if you think of like the Dyson hairdryer as a good reference price point, about $600, felt like that would be a good price point for this. And we just wouldn't be able to deliver that and make any money in the machine. And I don't think, especially from COVID we learned, like don't build on, don't build on profitable business. Don't build on sustainable businesses. It's, it's, it's irresponsible. And, and so if all of, and so the way the machine works, it's a pod based system. So you put a manicure pod in and in that pod is everything that touches your nails and everything to do with manicure. It's brilliantly designed where there's no cleanup. The machine picks tools up from the pod and then applies them to your nail and then puts them back in the pod. And so we realized as we, the machine would be slightly too big, slightly too expensive. So all the revenue that would feed the growth of this company is going to come from the pods, as you can expect. It's like the razor razor blade model. And or like, yeah, like I was thinking, you know, toner for you know printers. It's like printer cartridge, money. exactly. And so instead of going somewhere where someone might use it four times a month, why don't we go somewhere where people could use it four to six times a day? And so about a year and a half ago, we made the switch to launch B two B instead of direct to consumer, and that's been a phenomenal switch. It, within six months, we'd signed about a thousand locations pre-sold, sold out our first run of the machines. And this is without even having a machine done yet. And um, we've brought on incredible enterprise partners, two of which I can name in Ulta Beauty and Nordstrom, as well as a bunch of amazing high-end hair salons in New York City and in Boston and LA and Chicago. And the concept is to give the manicure in places where people already are and sat so that they can add it and add convenience to their day. So if you're getting your hair color, get a manicure while you're doing it. If you're sitting in a shop waiting for someone, get a manicure while you're waiting. If you're, if you're in a hotel, spa, you know, eventually gym, cruise ship, you name it. Um, but effectively they rent the machines from us and then they buy manicure pods and then they sell the manicure pod as a service to the customer. So as a customer, all you're doing is saying, yes, I want a manicure. Here's, here's the color I want. They're putting in a pod. And then on the app, you're you're customizing the manicure, what shape you want. Do you want us to do every nail? Is there an injured nail? And then press start, and then you put your hand in one at a time, and it it gets to work. And actually, it's really nice. It it does soup to nuts in one hand, so you you always have a hand free, which speaks again to the convenience side where people can be on their phones the whole time. Something I hate about most places that give you manicures, they're doing both your hands at the same time, so both your hands are redundant often which is really annoying in today's world. You want your hands so you can be on email, on Instagram, whatever it is. And so we go soup to nuts on one hand at a time. So full, full manicure on your right hand, full manicure on your left hand. By the time your left hand's done, your right hand's fully dry. So you can just get up and go. 
you can pay for things with your right hand while your left hand dries, or you can sit and let it dry. But I can't tell you how many consumers don't wait for a manicure to dry and then immediately chip it. It's one of the biggest frustrations is they don't have the patience to wait at the end, which I get. And then they chip their manicure and all that time was wasted. Interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay. So you're renting the machines and you got the pods. So I, I see the whole business model and how it's working. So what's the, yeah. what's the, like the current state of the state? Like anyone who's listening to this is going to say, well, when is this available? And, get it? You know, yeah. the size of the team or like whatever else you could share, just kind of like the state of the state of where the company's at. Sure. Um, so the most pressing question is when can you do it? We're hoping by the end of this year, we have fully up and running functional product in our office. We started manufacturing a long time ago, and we are already getting some of the first units out of our manufacturer who's in Malaysia, uh, already in our office up and running. And then, you know, the manufacturing is it's iterative. So you do piece cycles of the manufacturing and we're expecting the, the, the cycle that could do a full manicure, a very capable machine around the summer. And so we think by the summer, we'll be doing testing in the office on the final product. And then, you know, slowly taking that to our first enterprises to try with the idea of doing a full launch by the end of this year or, you know, early next. Uh, to get there, we've raised, uh, we just closed another 17 million rounds that was led by Shine Capital, Mo Koifman. And so that's, we've raised about 38 million to build this, to research and develop this product. Our team is 35, mostly engineers. Um, yeah, most engineers in supply chain, about 30 of our team. So, and it's they're based in Burlington, which is a fantastic place to build hardware out of amazing hardware ecosystem in and around Boston. Um, but yeah, in short, we're we're four years in and we're in the last year, we believe, and we'll have the product out to the world by the end of this year. And how did you figure out the manufacturing piece? Because that's another difficult part of the overall process. Like any founder, I didn't do it myself. Um, we brought in people who had very good experience and um, he was by the name of Chris Summersgill. Chris uh, had has been doing so a supply chain for a very long time, uh, big operational stuff, big belly solar was his a majority of his career. Um, they made the, the trash cans that yeah, um, yeah. compact. They're in my and, community. Yeah, amazing. And with his help and with, um, with Chris Casey's help, we identified, we figured out the requirements we need and then identified manufacturers around the world who could do it and settled on, um, Escatech in Malaysia. All right. So what advice would you have for founders that have an interest in building a, you know, a hardware product? I think we talked on this earlier is you need more people to get a hardware product off the ground. Um, there are just a lot more disciplines. And so. You know, there's there's a cost of people, which is like it's not good advice. Raise more money, but I think also when you have more people at the beginning of a company, there's so much more reliance on good communication, and so really focusing on on building your company structures early helps a lot because everyone's reliant on each other, and so putting in place really good processes in the company is is even more important than you know when you're twenty people than five people. Um. I think it's also hard to get feedback. So, you know, I didn't get my first manicure for three and a half years. And that means the decisions you're making are so much more important. And you need to do the research. You need to go and ask 
the customers. You need to do the quant studies and the qualitative studies. You know, and easy things we miss. We 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 knew the size of the machine originally, but at one point we just for, maybe forgot or got lazy and we didn't build plastic models of the exact size. And so, you know, you say okay, twelve by twelve by thirteen inches. Well, that's like a laptop, no problem. But actually, when you fill out a laptop, now it looks like an old TV, and you're like, wait a second, is this too big? Is this gonna? Where is this gonna fit? How are people going to fit this on their desk and fit their arm in front of it? And so like, these things seem obvious, and you seem almost uh, irresponsible for not doing it. But there are so many, so many chances to miss asking the hard questions of your consumer, and those decisions cost so much more in hardware down the line than software. And what about raising capital as you know a robotics company? Like was like when you met with Ben the first time, was was it like what you're looking to build? What like <laughs> and I'm sure at that point you probably, you know, so you said you self-funded some of the research. So you probably had some level of prototypes, but um you know the, not really the research report. Okay. Yeah. So so Ben took a big time swing, like a bet that this could actually happen. Yeah. I mean the nice thing about it, so at the end of the day, I, I, the laws of investing is try to invest in bigger ideas because they're all they're all difficult. Not just hard, every every business is difficult for a million reasons. And you know, our belief is we can build the generational intelligent beauty company. You know, we're just starting with the mannequin machine. Um, we believe that come if we're successful, big if, we'll end up. Where does that end up with? That ends up with biggest and best robotics team in the beauty space, as well as an incredible customer base and a brand to match. And what can we do after that? I think the opportunity is endless into all of intelligent beauty, you know, whether it's four years, six years, eight years down the road, you know, it's hard to predict what our next product will be. Everyone says pedicure machine, but it won't be that. I think we can look at all of skincare and, and hair care and um, the rest of the space and build really an amazing company that can bring so many products into automating people's routines. Um, and so when it comes to investing in that, you know, that is a helpful saving grace is like at the end of the day, you're going to go through all the risk of building a company. At least it's got the potential to be what we think 10 beauty can be. And, and then you need investors with a lot of, with a lot of courage because, and, and realism, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. No business is easy, but it takes a little bit longer for hardware companies to get there. Um, mm -hmm. We've been delayed, right? We've been delayed. Uh, lots of companies are, but they're typically not delayed in getting the product out the door. They're typically more delayed in getting to realize the revenues they think they're going to realize or operationalizing those products. I think that's something we've been able to get really ahead of. We've signed 13 million in ARR in six months of sales with no sales team. And so, you know, it took 10 years, it almost took, eight, seven, eight years at Alice to get there. Um, but it takes a lot longer to get out the door and a lot more capital. And so you also need to hopefully find investors who are ready for that journey because it's not for everyone. Yeah. And there's, you know, some of the failure stories out there of hardware, like, was it Juicero, right? Was the juicer that just was, <laughs> it was uh, an overly complex machine to create juice. Uh <laughs> it's It's much more public than other, places right um yeah. you know we've had great investors along with ben and, and then red scott at red sea came in nick brown at imaginary came and led our series a um and now mo 
at Shine for the latest round. Um, and so we've been lucky to have really good people around the table who I would say, I would say are much more mature and, you know, we just, we're not able to show them progress every three months, like a software company can. It doesn't work like that in hardware. It takes, it's a lot of work to make a leap in progress. It's not as incremental as a software company. Well, I'm excited for when you figure out the haircut piece. Yeah. I, I go, it's a, it's a one and a half on sides and back and a little trim on the top. So uh, Floby, you know, they innovated in this product category. <laughs> if anyone remembers the Floby, which was like a vacuum cleaner that you stuck on your head, it trimmed oh, yeah, your yeah. hair the same. So <laughs> that needs to be disrupted. <laughs> no. Uh, all right. What are the three apps you can't live without? No, I, 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 I thought you'd ask me about apps. I am someone who uses apps more as a, a gateway to something. Um, I think a lot of people do, but like, I'm not on an app to be on an app. I'm on an app is the best channel of getting to what I'm trying to get. And so you know, I think the the one I use most for business is Medium. I am, I am fascinated in how people build companies. And I love reading books on it, but I also love just reading blogs on it. You know, I recently we were implement, uh, we were going through our latest round of feedback, uh, performance review for our company. And, you know, I realized I never, ever educated the company on why feedback's important. They will know it, but no one really appreciated why feedback is important and how best to give it. And so I, I naturally go to Medium to start and like look at people who've written about feedback and find things I like and bring that back to the team. I'm not a creator of ideas myself. I love to take other people's ideas and apply it to how we run our company. And Medium is a great source for that. Um, number two would be Slack. It's an amazing tool for remote workers. I sit in New York and my team sits in Boston and I feel very connected to them through it. Um, number three is silly, Nanit. I get to watch my kids sleep while I'm gone and traveling. Awesome. Uh, okay. So an extension of the books or podcasts that you listen to about entrepreneurship, are there any that you'd recommend? I'm reading right now, No Rules, Rules, the Netflix mm -hmm. culture. Yep. That's and a good I one. I love it. Yeah. The way I read books, I have a pen and every other page I'm writing things down of who to send this to. And, and then I put folds in every page and, um, and I'm like, I've got a lot of notes in this book so far. I'm about halfway through. Um, my favorite book probably on business was multiplies by Liz Whitman. Um, I think it's just a really good reminder of what we're doing here as entrepreneurs, which is that you can't build everything yourself. You're multiplying other people and it's not how much you know that matters. It's how much you can access what other people know and how to bring the best out of them in that. And so I love I love that book. As I look through, because you told me you'd be asking me this, I look through all my notes and I had the most from that book. Like I use Kindle a lot and do the highlights and like I had so many. And usually in a business book, let's be honest, the message could be delivered in five chapters, but because it's a book, they have to deliver it in 15. And so a lot of it's sometimes a slog to read through, but that book multiplies. I had like, all the way to the end notes. All right. How about outside of work? What do you like to do for fun? Well, I watched Arsenal beat Liverpool yesterday at the Arsenal bar in, in New York. <laughs> and it was, a, the, it was, the energy was amazing. Um, family, I have two young kids, one-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter, almost one and almost three. Um, food, we're in New York City, so I live in Brooklyn, food and football my version the the soccer version of course of course well alex thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story obviously all the great work you've done uh with alice and 
I cannot wait to see 10 Beauty in action and uh, my daughter's, I'm sure, going to love it and my my wife. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on and um, for putting this together for the community. I think it's, it's a wonderful service. Mm -hmm.